KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. San Diego hospitals are filling up as we near a possible second COVID shutdown. If these trends continue, we're going to have to take much more dramatic, arguably drastic action. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Restoring San Diego's wetlands may help mitigate climate change. The salt marsh and seagrass here that we have in San Diego County are these blue carbon ecosystems. They sequester and store more atmospheric carbon than any other ecosystem on the planet. And on our excerpt from the KPBS podcast, Rad Scientist, learn how a UCSD professor is paving the way for a more diverse scientific community. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. San Diego County is seeing its rate of newly diagnosed coronavirus cases hovering at around 1,000 per day. And even more concerning is that hospitals are filling up with COVID patients. At last count, 692 San Diego hospital beds were taken by COVID patients. That's three times the number from early November. The same situation, or worse, is happening in most counties across California. Here's Governor Gavin Newsom. If these trends continue, we're going to have to take much more dramatic, arguably drastic action. The potential for a stay-at-home order for those regions in purple. The stay-at-home order would be similar to the one California had in place last spring. The question is, did a lockdown really help last time, and would it? This time, joining me is Rebecca Fielding Miller, a UCSD epidemiologist and assistant professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine's Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health. And Rebecca, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Healthcare workers are already bracing for the surge coming after Thanksgiving. Now, if current conditions continue, how long before San Diego hospitals are in serious risk of being overcrowded? It's hard to give an exact time frame. There are some things that are different now than were happening in the spring and summer. Um, For example, it tends to be younger people. We're seeing more infections in folks in their 20s and 30s right now, whereas very early in the epidemic, it was folks who were a lot older. But certainly we're on a trend to see some pretty overwhelming numbers in our healthcare system. And there's really no reason to think that if things continue, we won't start looking the way New York or Phoenix or El Paso have been looking. There's been so many openings and closings since the pandemic first began. Can you remind us what that lockdown last spring was like? I think one of the things that was pretty unique about the lockdown in the spring was it was the first time it happened, as opposed to the fact that we've been doing this now on and off, like you said, since March. And I think that first lockdown, that first day at home order was nobody was to leave their house except for um, essential business. So grocery shopping, trips to the pharmacy, things like that. 
the schools closed, retail closed, indoor dining, restaurants closed. And what we saw is that it, it worked. We saw case levels level off and then drop pretty quickly and stay that way actually until the summer when they started to go up again and we had to put in another closing of businesses and indoor restaurants and dining. So should we have kept that original stay-at-home order in place longer? Everything we've learned about COVID-19, we've learned since January. And I think one thing that is becoming really clear that we didn't know in, in March and April is really how this is transmitted and that it is predominantly spread through aerosols, through a lot of super spreading events, which tend to be indoors when you have a lot of people who are unmasked, who are talking, singing, things like that. And so it has become a little bit easier to calibrate what those stay-at-home orders should look like. For example, gyms, indoor dining, indoor businesses, anything where people are um, spending a significant amount of time and talking or doing anything else that would emit breath, those things should probably be closed and, and for a while until we have community spread under control. Other businesses or things that can be done outdoors are certainly higher risk, but I think we know now that they are not the predominant sources of spread. So basically, you're saying a second stay-at-home order could be tailored to what we've learned about the the virus. In fact, I think the first stay-at-home order closed some beaches, playgrounds, parks. Would it be a good idea to close them again? Let me say yes and. I think that now numbers are staggeringly high. This is the highest that we've seen in San Diego County ever to date. We have, like you said, over a thousand cases a day right now. And with numbers that high, even low risk events become risky, right? Because if you assume that there's a, I don't know, one in a thousand chance of getting infected by somebody at the grocery store, if somebody's infected, but all of a sudden there are more people infected at the grocery store than there were before, then your chances of getting infected at the grocery store go up, if that makes sense. When absolute numbers go up, rare events happen more often. And so I think when numbers are this high, really all bets are off. And this is when we need pretty drastic measures. That said, the drastic closures, people simply can't sustain for that long. And I think we just need to be mindful of the fact that people are people. So while I do think there should be something fairly drastic for the next few weeks, I think coming out of that a more tailored approach is important. And we know people are people. Um, We know perfection is hard. And so I think it's important that there be opportunities for people to engage in lower risk behavior. So for example, if you cannot completely isolate then at least socialize outside. And so keeping outdoor venues open kind of provides the opportunity for some harm reduction, so to speak. Considering that many people disregarded warnings not to travel or gather for Thanksgiving, do you think it might already be too late to stop our hospitals from being overwhelmed in the final weeks of this year? You know, I am an eternal optimist. I don't think it's too late, but I think that The other thing to think about with the stay-at-home order and with the closing of indoor businesses is a lot of our risk in the next few weeks is not going to come from bars and gyms and restaurants like it has been through the fall. It's going to come from people gathering with loved ones in their own homes, and that's not something that the state can really limit. And so I think it's really very much up to individuals to decide whether or not this is something that we can get under control. 
And so it's important to remember that this is finite. The first set of vaccines are being licensed as we speak with emergency use authorizations. People are going to start getting vaccinated in December and January. And while this holiday may be lonely, this is not how we want to spend Hanukkah and Christmas and Thanksgiving. It is finite. And I think by the spring and the summer, these gatherings will be so much safer. So at this point, because closing businesses is not going to do it, it's about holidays. It's really in the hands of individuals to say, I love you so much. And because I love you, we're not going to get together for that holiday party. But I cannot wait for the 4th of July. (laughs) If we do see a surge at local hospitals, how long after Thanksgiving would you expect to see it? I think we would start to see it probably within a week or two. You can kind of think of it coming in waves. So there are going to be the folks who became sick over the Thanksgiving weekend, but then also there's going to be the folks who were part of that transmission chain who maybe they didn't get together with somebody over the holidays because they're higher risk, but somebody who went to a family gathering then spent time with somebody else who then spent time with somebody who is elderly and vulnerable. So we'll probably start to see the beginning of it in a week or two, and then it'll probably keep climbing as just, again, the sheer absolute number of cases means that people who are more vulnerable get exposed more. And I've been speaking with Rebecca Fielding Miller. She's a UCSD epidemiologist and also assistant professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine's Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health. And Rebecca, thank you very much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. San Diego researchers and environmentalists are taking a close look at a pocket habitat that may become an important tool as the climate changes. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the region's salt marshes could be more than just a squishy terrain in out-of-the-way places. If you want to take one of these handles... Like Matthew Costa steps gingerly into a little pocket wetland near the Del Mar Fairgrounds. I don't think it's very likely, but watch out for bird nests. That's, okay. I don't think that they're nesting. Endangered right ridgeway rails like hiding in the pickle yeah, weed that covers the soft, moist ground between the train tracks and Camino Del Mar. Costa is a postdoctoral researcher at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. All right. I think this is a good spot. This is 15 meters. Last week we did 5 meters. He's here to help unlock information about this salty marsh, information that can't be seen by the thousands of people who pass by each day. We've got all these plants here. Underneath, there's a sort of a really muddy layer of sediment. And it's got, it's home to a lot of organisms too. There's lots of snails and other creatures living on the mud. Costa uncrates his tools and pulls out a long silver tube with a wide fin on one side. It looks a bit like a stubby sword. He places it upright and leans in, pushing it into the ground. Seems like we're in a soft spot. And then he uses a slide hammer to help him sink that tube even deeper. Once it's completely seated in the soft, wet dirt, Costa gently pulls the tube back out of the ground. A quick twist reveals the core sample, roughly seven centimeters across 
and 48 centimeters long. We're looking down in the sediment, we're kind of looking back in time. So this sediment accumulated maybe hundreds of years ago and built up over time to where we have the plants living today. Costa pulls samples, labels them, and in a lab he hopes to find out how much carbon is stored there. It's an effort to try and catalog the amount of blue carbon that's currently stored in our San Diego coastal wetlands and ecosystems. Corey Puccini is the California conservation manager at Wild Coast. He says the plants in the salt marsh grow fast, sucking in a lot of carbon dioxide. Some of that carbon gets trapped as the plants die and new ones grow over them. Unfortunately, Puccini says 90% of the region's coastal wetlands have been swallowed up by urbanization or dredged for recreation. But pockets persist. Yeah, so as you see behind me, there's a lot of these opportunity parcels that we like to call them, these orphaned wetlands that are in and around a lot of the currently existing wetlands in San Diego County that have the, the potential to be restored to enhance their capabilities to draw that carbon out of the atmosphere. Costa's research will give conservationists a better idea of how efficient the salt marsh terrain is at storing carbon and seeing if we can ecologically enhance them to create this ecological uplift so that we can sequester more carbon using these natural solutions to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. Doing that could help slow the pace of global warming because carbon in the atmosphere is responsible for a warmer climate. We're looking at areas like Batiquitos Lagoon up in Carlsbad, uh, the Kendall Frost Marsh in Mission Bay, here at San Diego Lagoon, Famosa Slough, and a number of our other coastal wetlands here throughout the region. Wild Coast's Zach Plopper says this research will help them understand more about the ecosystems and habitats that are in the nearshore area. Make San Diego County a leader on natural climate solutions. Plopper says blue carbon refers to habitats near the ocean that are particularly good at capturing and storing carbon. And the salt marsh and seagrass here that we have in San Diego County are these blue carbon ecosystems. They sequester and store more atmospheric carbon than any other ecosystem on the planet. Which makes them both a hedge against global warming and a buffer against rising sea levels. That's why Scripps researcher Matthew Costa is interested in measuring the impact the habitat has already had. He hopes mapping out the terrain's past will help gauge the salt marsh's ecological value in the future. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. In addition to reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and switching to green technologies, what would it take to remove enough greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere to make a critical difference? That includes, of course, boosting blue carbon habitats near the ocean. Professor Joseph Noel is lead researcher for coastal plant restoration with the Salk Institute's Harnessing Plants Initiative. And Dr. Noel joins me now. Welcome to Midday Edition. Very happy to be here. This is a topic of great importance to me and hopefully to lots of people. We'll start with a larger view. Why are plants so important in our battle to mitigate the effects of climate change? So plants have evolved this wonderful ability to, to do a thing called photosynthesis. And what that means is that they use sunlight, a little bit of water, and you, they use carbon dioxide that they suck in through pores in their leaves and other tissues. And they convert that carbon dioxide into sugars and all the carbon-based molecules that we and plants depend on. Um, and so it's a in some ways, it's a free way of drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere and converting it into a myriad of molecules that are really important to the plant lifestyle 
Um, and then, of course, humans and other animals have relied on plants as the basis of our food chain for quite some time. And in the process, the other thing that they do is they end up releasing oxygen back into the atmosphere. So they take one thing out that unfortunately has been rising over the last uh, several decades due to the Industrial Revolution, which is carbon dioxide leading to warming of the atmosphere. Plants are very able to take that out of the atmosphere, convert it into other molecules, and in the process release oxygen. So they effectively are the natural base solution to carbon drawdown for uh, to mitigate climate change. And plants in coastal wetlands are even more important, right? Absolutely. So this is something near and dear to my heart. Um, it turns out that when plants take that carbon out of the atmosphere, um, when they die, their roots and their leaves and other tissues, when they begin to decompose through the action of bacteria and fungi and other organisms in our soils, um, a, a significant portion of that carbon gets returned to the atmosphere. Some of it stays behind, and that's what gives rise to very carbon-rich soils um, in agricultural lands. Well, it turns out that in um, ecosystems that are wet, that is plants that are growing with wet feet, um, either um, partially or even completely submerged in freshwater, brackish water, and even in marine systems, they actually make more molecules in their roots and in their leaves and stems to protect themselves against these harsh environments. So it turns out wetlands, in particular coastal wetlands, are very harsh and plants deal with that by making molecules out of carbon that help them to survive. And it also turns out that those molecules resist decomposition by the same bacteria and fungi and other organisms that in terrestrial soils leads to rapid decomposition. So we've learned over the last several decades that wetlands in particular, um, uh, brackish and marine wetlands, can store up to 100 times more carbon in their sediments than an equivalent area of, of dry land. Wow, so that's they right. are an important um, and critical ecosystem on the planet for combating climate change. Um, the other thing that, unfortunately, they also are some of the most threatened ecosystems on the globe. And so as part of the Harnessing Plants Initiative at SALK, um, we have a, a component of it focused on wetlands and taking our ability to understand the genetic programs in plants and help to facilitate more rapid and more effective restoration of these really threatened wetland systems. Well, do you see hope for expanding or restoring wetlands on a significant enough scale going forward? After all, coastal areas are highly desirable for housing and recreation, and it puts great pressure on using these areas. I actually see um, a groundswell of support across the, you know, the, the political and, uh, spectrum in terms of, of a desire to not only protect current wetlands, but begin to expand them um, because they provide a lot of services and it depends on one's viewpoint, but they clean our waters. They obviously store quite a bit of carbon. There are, the, there are major carbon deposits on earth. And in fact, the tundra areas of our, of our uh, north across the globe are actually ancient wetlands. And so those are tremendous stores of carbon. But they also obviously provide a lot of economic benefit for communities that surround them in terms of fishery 
development and, and, and um, sustainability, et cetera. So I, I actually am very optimistic that there is um, a, a trend now towards preserving and even expanding these, these areas. And finally, how optimistic should we be that research on improving plants' capabilities and scaling them on farms and wetlands worldwide can make a real difference in staving off the worst effects of climate change? I am personally very optimistic, and I, and I say that coming from, I would say, a decade ago being uh, pessimistic. Um, that's because, one, there is bipartisan support for these kind of initiatives because they not only focus on the climate, which some people, you know, it, it is a topic that unfortunately is debated, although it is real science, but even those that do not necessarily completely buy into the to climate change or human-based um, uh, climate change, they see the economic benefits for these other aspects of the program. And so they buy in. So I've gone from a very pessimistic to a very optimistic attitude because the these kind of projects. Salk, I think we are the seed, <laughs> to use a pun. We've planted the seed with other plant scientists worldwide that to think about climate and to think about how plants draw down CO2. Um, so I think we, together with other scientists worldwide, can really make an impact because we're talking about um, ecosystems and um, farmed systems that cover a major portion of the, the land on land and coastal areas of the globe. Well, it's very encouraging to hear that optimism. I've been speaking with Professor Joseph Noel of the Salk Institute in La Jolla. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family-owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating, and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. On the latest episode of Rad Scientist, host Margot Wall introduces us to Dr. Gentry Patrick. He's a UCSD neurobiology professor and a champion of diversity in the sciences. Dr. Patrick is using lessons from his own journey from Compton to professor as a means to help other underserved students reach their potential. Fear. Angst. Ego. Imposter. That's Dr. Gentry Patrick speaking at UC San Diego's 2019 convocation, laying out the emotions that the newcomers might feel and that he felt throughout his education and journey to becoming a professor of neurobiology at UCSD. Struggle, failure, disbelief, hope, strength, truth, empathy love, joy, 
creativity, innovation. So Gentry was the assistant director of my neuroscience doctorate program um, while I was there. And I just, I mostly knew him because he used to DJ at our retreat parties, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but I never really knew his story until now. So as I pondered what I might say to you all today, it occurred to me that I might simply speak to myself as a freshman in 1988 who had recently left home to attend college and embark on a lifelong journey, a journey of the unknown, full of fear and hope, a journey that would be my story, a story worth telling, and a power within. Giving the convocation speech, becoming a tenured professor and the director of mentorship and diversity for the biological sciences, these were successes that he couldn't have imagined for himself as a kid. To give you some context, let me first tell you a bit about who Gentry was back then and the serendipitous journey that brought me to this stage today. Gentry was born in 1970 in South Central Los Angeles to a single mother of age 16 and was the first to attend college in his family. Where I grew up, it was um, NWA's first album cover at Colin P. Kelly Park. And, uh, and I lived around the corner from that. If you don't know NWA, you may know some of its early members, Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, or Ice Cube. And that part of Compton was home to gangs, like the Kelly Park Compton Crips. You know, it was a lot of drugs and gangs where I grew up, and I have several family members who've been murdered, cousins, or in jail. The system just caught up, you know. But his neighborhood was also filled with families that looked out for each other. My family members and friends in the neighborhood, they were very, very protective of me. I'm not sure why, when I think about it, there's no reason a priori for them to say, hey, Gentry, you might go do something with your life. They had no idea what I would do. Maybe it was his smarts. He always did well in school. I was kind of a nerd. I was a nerd. He went to a magnet school in Watts that specialized in medicine and science. And he had hopes of one day helping people in his community by being a doctor and serving those without quality health care. When it came time to think about college, Gentry had his eyes set on one school in particular. I applied to school and I realized, oh, I don't have enough money to apply to one school. Oh, I want to go to Berkeley. He only applied to one school. Luckily, I, they took me or else, you know, we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> he packed up his stuff and moved north found friends with similar interests, people that liked music as much as he did. I was part of a little DJ collective. We were called Be Easy, and we danced, and we, like, we were like a little crew of rapper dancers. And he got a job to support himself working at a government agency called the EDD, the Employment Development Department. So I had a job there giving out summer jobs to other people. So he's divvying out jobs, but then a job came across his desk. It wasn't glamorous, but it paid pretty well, better than his current position. A job came through for washing dishes at a laboratory, and I set myself on that interview. <laughs> he got the job and he was like, see ya EDD, I'm gonna go rinse these flasks for the big bucks. This job would be more than a summer position. He'd stay there throughout college, often working full-time on top of school. And he wouldn't only wash dishes. He'd get to help with experiments, and he'd learn from the other lab members about the world of research. 
as far as academia, education, and science. I didn't understand any of that back then. Gentry still applied to medical school come senior year, and although he interviewed at a few schools, he wasn't accepted. And I'm like, well, I like molecules. <laughs> I like proteins. <laughs> Gentry thought, maybe I want to do research anyways and learn more about proteins. And he remembered hearing about this program, called the Research Training Program at the University of California, San Francisco, that funded two minority students to do research and get their master's in biochemistry and biophysics. So he applied. But there was a small problem. Gentry had a low GPA. I think I had like a 2.1 or 2.2, but I had good MCAT scores. Even though he had done really well on the MCAT, a notoriously difficult standardized test, it was hard for the program to look past his grades. I assumed that admissions committees just said, this guy's smart, but he doesn't know what he wants to do, right? He's just lazy or something. Yeah, if lazy were working basically a full-time job while completing pre-med courses, sure. But Gentry also felt like he was missing a network to lean on for academic support. I just didn't have the stability to understand where I needed to go. I didn't have the right mentors. Gentry got word that the program wasn't going to take him. So he made a phone call to the head of the program, Dr. John Watson. Dr. Watson, you got to give me a chance. I don't know. You know, you're, you're great. Doc, Dr. Watson, I promise you, if you give me a chance, I will not disappoint you. Please give me a chance. I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. It worked. Ultimately, Dr. Watson decided to accept Gentry into the program. And to this day, we laugh. He's like, what if I had said no? because this experience launched his scientific career. After the program, he got into Harvard's neuroscience doctorate program, then went on to postdoc at Caltech. And at each stage, from master's to PhD to postdoctoral fellowship, he had mentors that built him up. They were all women. Those three women scientists played a major role. They showed me what real grit looked like. They showed me how to not take no for an answer. And uh, they also promoted me. They were advocates. I took a job at UCSD, not only because it's a great community here of neuroscientists, but because they gave me a job. <laughs> um, let's be honest, I didn't know how to like wheel and deal and figure out the best package for me. I was just like, are you kidding me? I'm this kid from the inner city and now I have a job as a professor. That was an excerpt from the latest Rad Scientist podcast. If you want to learn more about Dr. Patrick's science and a scholarship he started that is now funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, listen to the full episode. All you have to do is search for Rad Scientist in your favorite podcast app or go to kpbs.org slash radscientist. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating, and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how.